one of the scariest subjects in the Christian faith can be this whole idea that God's going to put you on trial, that you're going to have to answer for your life. And it's such a disturbing thought that some people just reject it. They refuse to believe that God will hold them accountable. So, if that's you, or if you've ever been curious about the judgment, you might want to stay tuned because I can almost guarantee that you're in for a bit of a surprise today as we talk about the judgment of God. Welcome to The Voice of Prophecy. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra. At least I'm your host for the next 30 minutes or so, and we're going to talk about the judgment of God. Now, if you want to tell a story about moral atrocities in the modern era, probably one of the easiest groups to pick on is the Nazis, because they were just so obviously wrong. You just can't think of anybody in the modern era who even comes close to their level of evil, except maybe Joseph Stalin or Pol Pot. So, Today, I'm going to start with the Nazis and World War II. Now, if you're from a younger generation, say my kid's age or even a little bit older, World War II is just something out of a history book. But when I was a kid, which wasn't all that long ago, a lot of the Nazis were still alive. The war was recent history. And my parents and my grandparents actually knew the Nazis because they were conquered by them. My father was born under Nazi occupation. My grandfather, on one side, fought in the underground resistance. And my grandfather, on the other side, actually spent time in a labor camp. So, in my circles, it's pretty recent history. In fact, if you're anywhere over 40, just do a little bit of math and figure out how much closer your birthday was to World War II than it is to now, and I think you're going to see what I mean. On the scale of world history, the Nazis are still a pretty fresh memory, which is probably why they're still our go-to group for illustrating evil. And even if this happened centuries ago, they'd still be a pretty good example of evil at its worst, because something like six million Jews died in the camps. And maybe apart from Stalin, who might have killed as many as 20 million, this has still got to be the all-time world record for mass murder and blatant genocide. But you know, one of the big problems after the war was figuring out who was responsible for what. I mean, the big names, there was no question. Hitler, Eichmann, Hess. The big names that were tried at Nuremberg, there was just no question. We knew these guys were guilty. They had to face judgment. And with the exception of a handful who cheated the courts by committing suicide, most of the well-known ringleaders had to face what they did. But lots of them simply disappeared after the war. They fled to South America or to some other point on the globe to avoid facing judgment. And what's interesting is even though roughly 70 years have passed since the close of the war, it still bothers us that some people didn't have to own what they did. I mean, we're still finding the last few perpetrators even today. And some of them are well past 90 years old when we find them we're still bringing the last few to trial. But it bothers us profoundly that lots of these guys got away with it. They just disappeared after 1945. And of course, finding them and holding them accountable is the right thing to do. But what I want you to think about today is 
why it's the right thing to do. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think it is, but why? I mean, why not just let bygones be bygones? Or is the crime so horrific, is the crime so horrible, that even the passage of decades cannot appease our collective need for judgment? I do hear some people saying, oh, but they're so old now, what's the point? But you don't hear that from someone who was actually in the camps. You don't hear that from someone whose family was wiped out, from someone who was tattooed with a number and forced to work like a slave on a starvation diet. You don't hear it from the people who saw piles of bodies behind the gas chamber. Those people know that 70 years or 100 years or a 1,000 years can't make up for what happened. Time doesn't make this okay. It doesn't balance the scales. You can't just walk away from that kind of crime. And when someone does, when someone gets away with it, when they get to live their life in peace, when they get to die of old age without standing trial, for the most part, we collectively feel like the human race somehow got cheated, that justice wasn't served, that somehow the ledger of the universe is now unbalanced and there's a debt that hasn't been paid. Now, if you're postmodern and you're 20 years old, maybe you think a little differently. But go back and talk to the people who lived through this and see what they think. And here's what I really want you to consider. Here's what I really want you to digest. Why do we all seem to feel there's a debt when people do something wrong? If somebody goes to jail and serves their time, we say they paid their debt to society. And when some of the Nazis went missing at the end of World War II, we say they didn't have to pay for what they did. So where exactly do we get this idea that people should pay for their sins? Now, don't misunderstand where I'm going with this. I do believe that you do pay for your sins one way or the other. And in no way am I suggesting that we should let war criminals off the hook. But where does the idea come from that people need to pay? Where do we get the idea that bad people owe something to the universe? And why do we assume there's supposed to be a day of reckoning? I mean, who says you owe anybody anything? Is this just a long-held tradition, a, a part of our human development, a leftover from ancient thinking, or is there something deeper at work? Is it possible that this ancient idea of a judgment day is such a deeply rooted part of our culture because it's real? I mean, think about this. I think we can all agree today that the Nazis were evil, and that's why I picked them as my example, because there's just very little dispute because the people who think the Nazis were okay are so few and far between. And when you do find somebody who gives the Nazis a pass, you just think, well, this guy's off his rocker. So most of us can agree the Nazis do not get a pass. They shouldn't get a pass. They should have to face judgment. That's why I picked that group. But what about the rest of us? Let's ask this. At what point should I have to face my sins? What point should you have to face your sins? Your sins might not be as blatant. You might not have committed genocide. You might not have tortured people or raped or killed or plunder. In fact, you might be a pretty decent person. But there will still be something. There's something you've done. There's some transgression you have to own. And it's even possible nobody else knows about it. Maybe your sin was done in private and the people you hurt don't even know it was you. Shouldn't you still have to pay for what you did? Oh, but that's different, right? Okay, it's different. 
But how is it different? Is it just a matter of degrees? Is there a line you can draw on the sand and say, okay, these sins are okay, you don't have to pay for these, but these ones over here, those are horrible atrocities and they put you in debt to the whole universe. Or is it possible that any sin puts you in debt? Is it possible that you might have to own everything you've ever done on a day of judgment? And does God even have the right to put you on trial? I think those are important questions. So more about that as soon as we come back. Life and its daily challenges can weigh us down, even when we have the best of intentions, leaving us with more questions than answers. Is it possible to have true peace and happiness in life? Are you searching for answers to this and other of life's most challenging questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online or on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like The Secret of Happiness and Is God Fair? You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. You know, there's a curious story in the Old Testament where God looks down on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he decides that the people who live there have become so wicked that his best option is to just scrap the cities and start all over. And sure enough, when you read about the kinds of things that were happening down in that valley, it's enough to make you think that you would destroy the cities too. Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living in town, And when he had guests at his house, angelic guests in fact, a crowd showed up at the door expecting to rape the visitors. That's the level of depravity in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how far down the path of wickedness those people had gone. So you can imagine how depraved Sodom and Gomorrah must have been on a day-to-day basis. If that's what they were doing in public, you can only imagine what they were doing behind closed doors. And so God decides it's judgment day. He decides to wipe the cities off the map because the moral depravity is so far gone, there's no coming back. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So there are only two alternatives. God could take away human free will and force those people to be good, which has no value because it's coercion, or he could simply put a stop to it. So that's what God decides to do. There comes a point where a loving God has to put a bad place out of its misery. But you know what takes place just before the fire falls from heaven is absolutely fascinating. At some point, maybe a matter of days before the judgment, God meets with Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre, and he discusses what he's going to do in his plan with Abraham, a mere human being. Now, you would expect that God doesn't have to check in with people before he does something, but That's exactly what happens in this story. And it's not because God has to check in with Abraham. It's because he wants to. He basically says, Abraham, you might want to go and get your nephew Lot because I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to wipe these cities off the map. Now, 
If this was just a pagan Greek myth, I don't think you'd find God explaining himself to Abraham because the Greek gods were kind of capricious. They just did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and it was seldom a good thing for the human race. But the Bible isn't Greek mythology. It reads more like a historical account. It's a different genre of literature altogether, and when you actually start to read it, you get quite a few surprises, like a God who wants to have a meeting with Abraham to discuss what he's going to do. So listen to this now in Genesis 18, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? You know, it, it sounds like God realizes that people might have questions when a whole city just disappears from the map. It sounds like he cares about what we think, and that runs contrary to the way most people talk about God. I mean, the way I grew up, God does what he wants, and that's that. We have no say in the matter. There is no court of appeal. You and I are just pawns on the cosmic chessboard, and God does whatever he wants. But look at the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. That might be the God of the Greeks or the Romans or the Egyptians, but it's not the God of Abraham. Abraham's God takes the time to review his plans with the human race before he carries them out. And if that doesn't come as a surprise to you, what happens next probably will. Abraham is listening, and he senses an opportunity, and he begins to ask God some really tough questions. Lord, are you really going to destroy an entire city? I mean, what if there are 50 good and righteous people living in there? Are you going to kill those people too? Wouldn't you spare it for 50 people? And God says to Abraham, you know what? Yes, for 50 people, I would spare it. But I've looked, and there aren't 50 people. Well, God, then what about 45 people? Would you save it for 45? Yeah, for 45 I would save it. But I'm telling you, Abraham, 45 don't exist. And as you read the story, Abraham keeps going. 30 people, 20 people, 10 people. And if you really look at what's going on in this story, you discover something mind-blowing. This is a judgment scene, and obviously the wicked are about to meet with their demise. But look at it carefully and ask yourself, who's really on trial? God believes there's no hope for Sodom and Gomorrah. He believes that if those cities keep on going, it's only going to spread the suffering and misery, and it might even spread to the neighboring communities. So God is now in a position where the only option is to put people out of their misery. He's going to put a stop to it. So their fate is determined. He's already made up his mind. And by the time this discussion is over, Abraham can see, yes, God is right. So think about this really carefully, because it's not actually Sodom and Gomorrah on trial in Genesis chapter 18. It's actually God on trial. He's subjecting himself to questions. He's letting Abraham question his motives. Just listen to this. Listen to Abraham as the discussion gets underway and ask yourself, what's really going on here? This is Genesis 18, verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Now listen to this carefully. It's verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. 
far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Do you see it? It's actually the character of God on trial. Abraham is questioning whether or not God is doing the right thing, and God allows the questions. And that's because God has nothing to fear. He's got nothing to hide. He knows that we have a limited capacity to understand. He knows that we are not omniscient, so he patiently opens the books. He patiently invites us into the process. He lets us ask questions before final judgment happens. And I don't know about you, but that's completely contrary to the stuff I was taught as a kid. The way I grew up, we had no say in the matter. Judgment just happened. Your case was sealed, done, before you had any input. But look carefully through the Bible, and you're going to find something utterly amazing. Whenever you have judgment, you have books. There are records. And God opens those records so the universe can look. And if you've never seen that, you might want to stay tuned. Because right after this break, I'm going to show you what I mean. So don't you go away. I'll be right back. And this might just revolutionize the way you look at God. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Where is God when people suffer? Can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or pick up the phone and call us at 888 456 7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. 888-456-7922. Study online on our secure website or have the free lessons mailed right to your home. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Today we're talking about the judgment and the surprising possibility that God is actually putting Himself on trial. And as I mentioned before the break, that's completely different than the mythology of the Greeks or Romans because those gods were always above human scrutiny. But have a look at some of the big judgment passages in the Bible, and I think you'll see what I mean. For example, Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man comes to the throne of God for the final judgment hour, and it's really pretty breathtaking. Daniel 7 verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now ask yourself, why in the world does an all-knowing God need books? Does he really have to look stuff up? Or is it possible that those records are for the benefit of the thousands and thousands gathered in that courtroom? Is it possible that before God pulls the trigger on final judgment, he gives the universe an opportunity to examine his thinking? Really, slow down and think about this. According to Scripture, there's been a significant challenge to the government of God. One-third of angels rebelled, according to the book of Revelation. And one angel in particular tried to lay claim to the throne of God. And when you try to see someone's throne, you're really saying, look, there's someone wrong with the person on the throne. You're raising questions. 
you're mounting a challenge against the veracity of God's character. So before God closes history, before he pulls the plug on our story, he opens the books and he lets his universe look. He puts his decisions on display. Just listen to Revelation chapter 20. This is verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There are records. There are always records. You have a crowd assembled that goes through the records. It's like Abraham with God. Is this really the right decision? Are you sure there's no other way? So God opens the books and he patiently lets us look because that's who God is. You know, in Amos 3 verse 7, the Bible says the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret. And that tells me that God is interested in disclosure. He's not arbitrarily making decisions to suit his own whims. He's not acting unilaterally. When it comes to judgment, he's going to open the records and show us why he makes the decisions he does. And in Revelation chapter 15, there's this incredible scene where God's people make this really remarkable statement. It's in verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. Now, I hope you caught the language there. The final declaration we make as humans is that God was right. He did the right thing every single time. Even on those occasions we didn't understand, when we thought that maybe God was absent or made a mistake, even on those days, eventually we will come to the conclusion God did the right thing. And the only way we could come to that conclusion is if we have been examining the character of God. God shows us the books. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this amazing. God is willing to put himself on trial. When heaven rebelled, when one-third of the angels left, when God's throne was challenged, he could have just wiped out creation and started over. It would have been his right. But you've got to wonder how in the world that would have led to a satisfactory conclusion. How do you give your creation free will and still eliminate sin? And the answer is you let sin run its course. You let people go if they want to. You let them live the way they want to. Because if you just destroy the rebels, that would actually raise more questions than it answered. People forever would wonder, ooh, I wonder if the rebels were right, if maybe God was afraid of something. So God has allowed sin to run its course. And then, after the universe has seen the truth at the cross of Christ, after they've seen who God is and who the devil is, then he calls it quits because then people are making an informed choice. They can see what sin does. You know, when a bunch of Nazis go missing after the war and we never even find them, that really bothers us. We want them to stand trial. We want them to answer for what they did. And the truth is, there are records somewhere in this universe, and God hasn't missed a single thing. Those who escape human justice will still have to face the judgment of God. And the angels who actually saw Lucifer's rebellion can look through the records and see for themselves the depths of depravity that Lucifer caused. They can see the pain. They can see the disease. They can see the suffering. And the conclusion is a sure thing. The devil is a murderer, and God is love. Now listen, if there is a judgment, and there is, you're going to have to face your record too, unless 
you accept the gift of Christ. Right now at this moment, he's offering you his perfect sinless record as a gift so that when your name comes up in judgment, when the angels get to your record, they can't even see your sin. All they see is Jesus. All they see is your relationship with him. And they'll know that because of Christ, it is perfectly safe to bring you into heaven even though sinful angels were kicked out. But you know the most amazing thing? It's not just us on trial. For thousands of years now, God has put himself on trial willingly, as if he has to answer to us, as if he actually owes us an explanation. And when the dust settles, when the records are examined, when you finally stand in front of his throne, you will know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he really is everything he's ever claimed to be. Look, I I get it. Right now, you have questions. Right now, in this life, there are days when it seems like God must have gotten it wrong. Like he forgot about you, or he didn't even notice the injustice in your life. There are days when it seems like somehow God is actually at fault for the misery you have to live with. But don't forget, there are forces at work in this world that want you to think that God is to blame. They want you to think there's something wrong with his government. They want you to think God has failed. But on those days, when life is hard and good answers seem like they're few and far between, then go back to the Gospels and read about Jesus. Listen to what he says. Pay attention to what he does because he came to show us the Father. Look at Jesus and ask yourself, would a God who doesn't care really give his life for you? Would a God who doesn't care come to this world and willingly subject himself to the kind of abuse we heaped on him? You see, it's not that God had to put himself on trial because he doesn't really owe us anything. But he patiently endures. He patiently waits because he doesn't want to lose you. His final goal in the judgment is not to get you out of his kingdom. It's to get you in. Everything he does is about saving you. And it's all about giving you a chance to see who he really is. So my suggestion, my challenge to you is really pretty simple. Just go back and look. Don't worry about the things that people say about God. Forget all the stories and mythology that you've heard. Just go back and look for yourself. Because chances are you might just have a Bible stashed away in your home somewhere, and that Bible is Exhibit A. Go and read it. See if Jesus passes judgment, because I have no question he does. Now, unfortunately, I'm running out of time. I'm up against the clock again. Every week we run out of time before I'd really want to be done studying. So that's it for this week. But just before I go, I'm going to give you one more chance to sign up for the Discover Bible course, absolutely free while supplies last. So go grab a pen and paper very quickly and make sure you take advantage of this incredible opportunity for a guided study through your Bible that will help you see what God is really like. But for now... I'm Sean Boonstra. You've been listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Are you searching for answers to life's most difficult questions? Answers to help you make sense of the things that are happening right now in your life? Answers to the deepest questions in life like, can God really forgive me? Guilt and shame can be terrible burdens to carry and can leave us wondering if God really can love us and accept us. Are you wondering if there really is a chance for true happiness in this life? 
if there is a secret to living a happy, contented life in a world of uncertainty. Well, if you're searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions, we are here to help. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7922, for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. You'll find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and From Guilty Sinner to Forgiven Saint. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides as the major themes of the Bible come to life. Begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today to BibleStudies.com.